and I've been asked to give it. I'm a fourth-generation gypsy raised here in the United States. My great-grandparents immigrated from different parts of Europe, no specific country, as they were the wanderers of Eastern Europe, uh, raised in a traditional gypsy home, uh, married at the age of 16. There's no dating in our culture. My late wife, Dolly, was chosen for me by my parents. I always say that my mom and dad did a great job, but I wasn't sure about her folks. And we were absolutely total strangers prior to our wedding day. We had never carried a conversation uh, till the day of the reception, matter of fact. And uh, had she lived through December of 2017, we would have celebrated almost uh, 40 years of marriage. And you say, how does a marriage survive when you don't know the person that you're marrying? Well, it, the answer is much more simple than you realize. Love is a choice. You choose to fall in love and you choose to stay in love. And sad to say, some have chosen to fall out of love. But as a young gypsy couple, we set out on a course to be successful by the standards of the gypsy people. For success for a gypsy woman in our culture is determined by how successful of a fortune teller she is, monetarily speaking. And as a young maiden, my wife and her parents' home in Youngstown, Ohio, was already a renowned fortune teller in our culture. And they are the first to get married because they're breadwinners, they're assets to the families that they go to. Success for a gypsy man in our culture is determined by how much money his fortune-telling wife makes for him and the prestige that it gives him in the culture with the car he drives in his wardrobe, etc. And for the first nine years of our marriage, we set out to establish that so-called success. My goal was to be a millionaire by the time I'd reached the age of 40. Operating a fortune-telling parlor in Springfield, Ohio in the fall and winter months, and in the spring and summer months, I was a con man in a traveling carnival. At the age of 25, I have just about satisfied the goal of becoming a millionaire. But I say without exaggeration, one morning I woke up with a vacancy in my heart, a vacuum, a void, an itch that I couldn't scratch. Something was missing. I would go out and buy a brand new car thinking that would satisfy it. Go out and make more money, take another vacation, but I still woke up every morning empty. And I began a search, a trek, if you might say. I wanted the answer to that proverbial question, what's life all about? I was looking for truth, but truth was foreign to me. As a small boy, if I performed the con, my parents would re reward me. If I didn't perform the con, my parents would reprimand me. That'll confuse a 10-year-old boy. And so I began a search. And I'm sad to say that I looked for the truth in many of the wrong places. But God knew my heart and my desire to know truth, and someone brought the gospel to me. Amen. I had carnival concessions that we would hook up with ride companies, and uh, there was a ride company in Ohio that we would never work with this man in the past. He was more wicked than I was. He was on drugs and alcohol. He literally beat his employees, and his marriage was just in disarray. But my late wife and I had heard that he'd become a born-again Christian. Now, we didn't know what that was, but we felt that religion might have changed him enough that we could tolerate him and work with him. So early in the spring of 1980, we hooked up our carnival concessions with the Dine Amusement Company out of Canton, Ohio, and saw a dramatic change in this man's life. He was off of drugs and alcohol had a good relationship with his employees, and his marriage was in the healing process. 
And one of the things that impressed me most about this man was his prayer life. And he's usually on the teardown night of the carnival. Now, the teardown night is a dangerous night. It's when we tear down the heavy equipment and hitch up trucks and trailers and drive to the next fair or festival. It's a night where someone could get hurt. And I'd watch him in the wee hours of the morning go behind a tree or maybe a concession trailer, and I'd watch him pray. And something said inside of me that he knew something or someone that I did not know and that I needed to know. He was a young Christian, wasn't even churched yet. He would fumble through the Bible to try to show me how to be saved. But he said three words to me very early in the spring of 1980. He said, you need Jesus. Others had said that to me, but their life wasn't matching to what I thought Jesus was like. And his life was a testimony of Christ. The carnival season is six months long. He planted the seed very early in the spring, and by the fall of that year, it was the last festival of the year. It was the Loudonville Street Fair in Loudonville, Ohio. We literally take over the whole town. Rides, concessions on every street. Everything's shut down. We park our trucks and trailers in the parking lots of closed businesses. Our RVs and campers were parked in the parking lots of closed businesses. It was the last day of the festival, Sunday, October 4th, 1980. And I went to Joel and I said, Joel, you told me I need Jesus. How do I get Jesus? And he said, Walter, get alone with God. Confess to him that you're a sinner. Tell him that you believe that he's the Savior and ask him to come into your heart to save you. I went back to my travel trailer in broad daylight. It was parked in the parking lot of a funeral home. I knelt beside my bed. I looked toward the heavens and prayed a prayer something like this. I said, dear Lord Jesus, I don't understand the Bible. I said, Jesus, I don't understand Christianity. I told him that I definitely didn't understand the church. But I also told him that I was a lost sinner on my way to hell without him. And I asked Christ to come into my heart and save me. I even closed that prayer with this phrase, Lord, take me to heaven when I die. And you know what Jesus did at that very moment. He established my feet upon the rock, the Lord Jesus. I've never been the same since. I always say I got hit with the gospel. I believe in a gospel that saves a man. I believe in a gospel that keeps a man saved. And I believe in a gospel that changes the way a man lives. And God began to make dramatic changes in my life. Came home off the carnival circuit and... Uh, my wife began to see a dramatic change in my life. I was never much of a stay-at-home dad after the carnival season. I'd hang out with my friends, do my own thing, but I began washing dishes and changing diapers. And my late wife, Dolly, said to me, what happened to you? You're not the same. And I presented the gospel to her, and she received Christ. And I'm going to make a longer story shorter. We took a chainsaw to the fortune-telling sign, cut it up into hundreds of pieces. We parked the carnival equipment. I punched my first time clock as an assistant manager of a Bonanza Steakhouse and got involved in a good, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing church in Southwest Ohio. It was in that church that we were trained for ministry. It was in that church that I answered the call to preach the gospel. It was in that church that my local church pastor took me under his wing and trained me for the ministry. It was in that church that I served for five years as assistant and his youth director. But in the meanwhile, my wife and I were praying for the lost gypsies of the world. 
National Geographic says there's 40 million scattered all over the world. The United States government puts that number at 1 million. I believe those numbers are way, way too low, but it's the only documented numbers I have. And so nightly, my wife and I would lift up the gypsy people. We would pray, God, send someone to the gypsies of Cleveland, Ohio. is the largest population of Ohio. Send someone to Chicago, Illinois. Send someone to New York City, Los Angeles, Dallas, Fort Worth, as they make their headquarters in the major cities of America. I began to pray, God, send someone. And it wasn't long while I was praying that prayer that the Holy Spirit whispered to me and said, what about you? And I said, oh, no, not me, Holy Spirit. I'm second man of the Crossroad Baptist Church. Youth department's growing. Souls are being saved. And the Holy Spirit whispered back and said, no, I've made you. I have molded you to reach your own people with the gospel. And after about 13 months of deputation, we left Southwest Ohio, went up to Cleveland, Ohio, where we started the first gypsy ministry amongst Baptists of any flavor anywhere in the world. I've been saying that for over 30 years and have never been corrected. At the Cleveland Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, under the ministry of Dr. Roy Thompson, that ministry has been there for 34 years. From there, I went on to Miami, Florida with a gypsy ministry, and then 12 years in Eastern Europe, until my late wife's cancer metastasized to her lungs, which brought us back to the States. Now I head up a mission agency called Roma Outreach Missions Association. That's the politically correct name for the gypsy people, the Roma people. You call me anything you want, just don't call me late for supper. And uh, we uh, have gypsy ministries in Kissimmee, Florida, where we meet with the gypsies uh, every Thursday night. I work with the gypsies of Pakistan via the Internet. My executive director, Dr. Tim Clark, works with the gypsies of India via the internet, and we also oversee our Eastern European works. God has just uh, been faithful, and it humbles me that he's even called me into the ministry, and I thank him for it. I have a prayer card on our display. Stop by and pick one up, and we, I, all these missionaries that are here this week covered your prayers. There are many prayer cards all over in all the displays. And you say, Brother Stevens, every time a missionary comes to our church, they're asking for people to pray for them. Are they looking for a lot of people to pray for them? Not necessarily. They're looking for the right people to pray for them. Those who know how to touch the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus, there is a bullseye on the back of every missionary. And so we ask that you pray for us. We know the second closest thing to a Baptist heart, and that's why we put a recipe on the backside. Amen? This is my wife's recipe for gypsy cabbage rolls. They're absolutely amazing, but they can be a little spicy. So should you decide to prepare them, don't bother calling us for Tums or Roll Aid. You're on your own. Amen. Uh, I had been challenged for many years by my mentors, many friends, peers in the ministry to write my autobiography. You're always hoping that someone will write your biography after you die, but you just don't know if they're going to do it. So I decided to write my own. I only have a sixth grade formal education. I'm kind of like Jethro the Beverly Hillbillies. But I sat down and decided to write my autobiography. It's entitled, A Gypsy Beggar Saved by Grace, The Life and Ministry of Missionary Evangelist Walter Stevens. This book tells the story I told you tonight, but it tells about the gypsy culture. Kind of answers the question, maybe why are they the way they are and how desperate they are for the gospel. It's a great evangelistic tool. Matter of fact, I dedicated most of chapter two of just presenting the gospel. I even lead folks to the saving knowledge of Jesus and makes a great, great evangelistic tool. I don't sell this book. I receive donations and all the money that we raise on this book goes to projects. Because of this book, we made over 40 trips into the Ukraine 
our team went into the Ukraine. I only made two of them. And uh, taking humanitarian aid, but also taking the gospel. Uh, we are in a position now to establish churches in southern Ukraine, but it all depends on how that war ends. So please pray for the country of the Ukraine. I have many copies. If you'd like one, stop by and pick up one. And if the Lord leads you, give a donation if he doesn't take one anyways. Acts chapter 8, please. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin at verse 5 down to verse 8 of Acts chapter 8. I'm preaching a message entitled this evening, Bringing Great Joy to the Cities of the World. Thank you, uh, Brother Bushy. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for Dr. Seaman for being my my host and helping me, and just uh, pray that God will bless this conference. Acts chapter 8, beginning at the 5th verse, we'll read down to the 8th verse. I'll read aloud as you follow in silence this evening. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. Acts chapter 8, begin. be nice if I got there, wouldn't it? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And verse 8 is where we get the title and the theme of the message. And there was great joy in that city. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, you know how I've contemplated this night. I've prayed, I've sought your face. And I'm asking God that you will hide me behind the cross and use me. I want to be a blessing to my dear friend, Pastor Wilkerson, the staff and faculty of here at Hiles and First Baptist. And Father, I want to be a blessing to the wonderful people of First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. And Father, most important of all, I want to be a blessing to the heart of my Savior, the Lord Jesus, for it's in his name we do pray with thanksgiving. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. How does great joy come to the people of the world? How did great joy come to the cities of Samaria? How did great joy come to my precious Roma, my gypsy people in Romania and Hungary? The Ukraine and Cleveland, Ohio, now ministries in Hollywood, Florida, and Kissimmee, Florida. To the gypsies of Pakistan and India. The gypsies of the world now finding hope in the person of Jesus Christ. The gypsy language is a limited vocabulary language. It's not updated and predominantly it's an unwritten language. I write in it using the phonics of the host nations so that I can communicate with my nationals. But being a limited vocabulary word, a vocabulary language, there are words that are missing out of the gypsy language that just breaks my heart. And one of those words is the word hope. There is no word for hope in the gypsy language. What do you call a race of people that doesn't have a word for hope? You call them hopeless. The second word that's missing that breaks my heart is the word future. There's no word for future in the gypsy language. No hope, no future. What do you do, Brother Stevens, then when you get to a nation to be able to tell them about hope and future? I have to borrow words from the indigenous language of the nations in which I'm preaching. If I'm preaching in Romania, I use the Romanian word for hope, speranza, or I use the word for future, vitor. In English with my gypsies, I just use the English word, hope and future. And we have given them hope in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now they have a, a purpose Savior that they can call as their own and they have churches and they have Bibles and they have all that they need to be able to survive in this life and have the hope of eternity in heaven. The Samaritan people in our story were a people that no one wanted to associate with. It reminds me of my gypsy people. As you travel the world, there are different names for the gypsy people. In Germany, there's the Zigoyen. And just to remind you that Hitler killed 600,000 of my people in the Holocaust. It's documented. If you were to go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there isn't a room that's totally dedicated to their memory. But in a, in a, in a room that's almost circular, there's a gypsy wagon in the center of it with, with gypsy artifacts on the walls. Uh, the gypsy people in, in Romania, they're called Tsigan. In Spain, they're called Gitanos. In Greece, they're called Giftos. And the word means the same in every nation. It means the untouchables, the unwanted, the undesirable people. I remember the first time I went to Romania to establish churches amongst my people. I was walking with a national pastor down the dirt roads of Tinka, Romania. An elderly Romanian woman came out of her home, began screaming at me, throwing stones and, and grabbing uh, dirt and throwing it at me. And I looked to the national. I said, why is she so upset with me? And the national said, Brother Stephen, she believes that you're going to vex the Romanian people by bringing the gospel to the gypsy people. It's like pearl before swine because the mentality of the Romanians was that the gypsy had no soul. He was like the animals. And of course, we showed her wrong with our gypsy churches. The Samaritans' peoples in our story were Jew, the people that the Jews did not want to fellowship with. John chapter 4, verse 9 says, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, but God loves the Samaritan peoples of the world. Because John, again, in the Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And if you know anything about the geography at the time of Christ, from where he was to where he was going, he did not have to go through Samaria, except for the fact that there was a woman at a well who needed to hear the gospel. Jesus loves the Samaritan peoples of the world, the untouchables, the undesirables, the outcasts of the world, those who are on the margins of the fringe of society. I'm all for going to the foreign mission fields of the world, but on our way to the foreign mission fields, we bypass pockets of people who need to hear the gospel. Just think about all the ethnic groups that you have just in your community. In South Florida, 256 different languages and dialects. And I'm all for going to the foreign field. But Jesus said we're supposed to go into the highways and hedges. Those who are right around us. We talk... We've never coined the phrase the good Roman. We've never coined the phrase the good Jew. But we sure have coined the phrase the good Samaritan, have we not? Jesus brought great joy into the city of Samaria like he brought great joy to my outcast gypsy people. But how does great joy come to the cities of the world? When we think about all the mission fields that are represented in this conference tonight, how is great joy going to get there? There are cards being distributed tonight in this conference. If you'll go to all the displays, the missionaries will have their cards. They're important cards. They want you to take them. They want you to pray for them. They want you to put them in a place that you can see them often to lift them up. But there's another card that Pastor mentioned that's being distributed. It's called the Faith Promise Commitment Card. And we are in the Faith Promise Commitment Conference. 
And I truly believe that on the church's calendar, this is the most important meeting. You say, Brother Stephen, that's because you're a missionary. That's because you're a president of a mission age. No, because missions is the heartbeat of God. That's what's just closest to heart of reaching the world with the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. How would you like to be someone who has never heard the gospel? Who no one has never knocked on your door? Who's never told you about Jesus? I was raised in a small town in central Ohio. We lived on an elevation on Main Street, 1018 South Main Street. On our front lawn was a big white sign with 12-inch tall letters that said, Reader and Advisor. Bill Fountain was a town of 10,000 people. My mom was the local fortune teller. No one, Brother Bushy, ever came to our door to give us a gospel track or to, or to invite us to church. No bus has ever stopped at our house to pick us up to take us to church. Usually on a Sunday afternoon, my family and I would go out to a restaurant. I'm just a small boy. And I'd see little boys with vests and bow ties, little girls in frilly dresses and patent leather shoes. And I'd say to myself, what's going on in town that I don't know about? Little do we understand how difficult it is to see through our stained glass windows. There are people that we need to take the good news of Jesus Christ to. Those who are looked over, passed over. Maybe the mentality of the church pastor was let the gypsy fortune teller die and go to hell. That's where she deserves to go. How do we get great joy when most of the world is in great despair? And I could park there for a while, but I'm not. In our text, you could almost say that God has given us a natural outline. I'd rather say it's a supernatural outline to get the verse 8. In our text, there's a process. There's a pathway, a prescription, if you will, of how to get great joy to the cities of the world. When words like joy and happiness and contentment have been perverted in most of the materialistic cultures in the world, I want you to look at our text, and I want to draw some thoughts. Now, let me just say this right off the bat for those of you who may never heard me preach. I, I, I never went to Bobbyville College. Uh, I'm a sixth-grade educated gypsy. After I answered my, the call to preach the gospel, I went back and got my high school diploma. And matter of fact, I was ready to come here. I was going to Hiles. We were just down the road. We weren't far. But my pastor came to me, Brother Spencer, and he said, Brother Walter, I've had so many young men who answered the call in our church and went off to Bible colleges but never came home to minister in the local church. And he said this, he made this deal with me. He says, if you'll be my Timothy, I'll be your Paul. And I learned this book at the feet of Dr. Larry N. Spencer. So I never went to Bible college. I, I'm not a deep preacher. Matter of fact, I'm a surface preacher. But there's enough good stuff on the surface of Scripture that we can be edified. And here's the preacher's responsibility. In his study, he gathers these nuggets of gold and he gathers these nuggets of silver and he gathers these precious stones and he just can't wait to stand before God's people and to distribute these wonderful truths of God's word. That's what we're going to do tonight. It's on the surface of Scripture. I want you to see what it takes to get to verse 8. Follow along with me, please, in verse 5. Here's the first component. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Number one, there needs to be a preacher sent from God. That's what these missionaries are. There are preachers sent from God to represent you on the foreign fields that God has called them to. Not all of us is called to the foreign field, 
But if all of us can be involved by being involved with the faith, promise, commitment, watch church, it's election time at First Baptist Church Hammond. And that prayer card is like a ballot, and you're going to vote. And if you vote to give less than what you gave last year, here's what you're saying, preacher, these are difficult times. We need to draw back a little bit. If you vote to give the same that you gave last year, here's what you're saying. Preacher, keep it at status quo. We're okay the way we are. But if you vote to give more than you gave last year, here's what you're saying. You believe that the trumpet's going to sound. The eastern skies are going to break open, and we're going to be called away. And now is the time to reach those that are around us and around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith promise card is your vote. You're going to be voting this week and this month at your church, there needs to be a preacher. Philip was the preacher sent from God in our story. Who was the preacher that was sent from God to you? We were the preachers in 1995. I was in Cleveland, Ohio, pastoring our gypsy work when I got a telephone call from a Romanian national who was just south of us in Akron, pastoring a Romanian Baptist church. He spoke to me in the gypsy language, which is very rare because our language is predominantly untaught. And he said to me, he said, I was raised with your people in Bihor County, Romania. And he said, I made a promise to God that if communism ever fell, that I would go back to my homeland and establish churches amongst the Roma people, your people. Well, naturally, we got excited about that. He invited us to his home, my late wife and I and another gypsy missionary. We went to his home, we had a meal, and he showed us a homemade video of the gypsies of Dinka, Romania. Under communism, most things were kept secret. And after the fall of communism, the way the gypsies were being treated got to the West. And our heart was broken. And we knew that we had to go there firsthand. The Romanian National raised his support and went back to Romania in May of 1995. We gave him a month to settle in, and we followed him in in June of 1995. We wanted to go to the gypsies that we saw in the video, but to our dismay, he had moved to the large city, and that's not the gypsies we wanted to go to. So we took a, a, a flight from Cleveland, Ohio, to Budapest, Hungary. There was direct flights back then because of the large Hungarian population in Cleveland. We landed at the Budapest airport and took public transportation to the Bihor County where he met us at the bus station. And he did, we told him we didn't want to go to his home. We didn't want to go to the large city. We wanted to go to the gypsies that were in the video. So he took us to Thinka. Now, this is just a few years after the fall of communism. There wasn't any hotels. There wasn't any restaurants. He put us in an old, board, uh, broken-down boarding house that didn't have screens in the windows. It was summertime, so we had a lot of visitors every night. If there was water, it was cold. Uh, my, uh, there were no restaurants, but my sister has sent with me two three-pound Hickory Farm beef sticks. You know the ones you get at Christmas time? And I had taken with me a case of Raymond chicken noodle soup. You know, the ones that are 100 for a dollar? Not really. But they're light and easy to transport. I took with me a collapsible Sterno stove. I didn't know that you couldn't take Sterno on an airplane, and I did. And that's what we ate, preacher. We didn't have a car, but we ate beef stick and Raymond noodle soup, got some of the fresh-grown tomatoes, some of the best tomatoes I've ever eaten, and some of the fresh-baked bread from the bakery. But we didn't care about living conditions. We didn't care about not having a car. And every day we'd grab our backpacks and walk off to the villages, walk around the villages where the gypsies were. Now, there's no such thing as a gypsy town or a gypsy village. Every village or town has a parcel of land that was given to them by the communist government, always on the outskirts of town near the dumps 
or near the railroad tracks. And when we got to the small villages, it was easy to find them. But our goal is to get to Dinka, Romania, the gypsies we saw in the video. Dinka was a town of 2,500 people. And so I didn't know where that parcel of land was. But the sovereignty of God had a little gypsy boy right at the outskirts of town. I spoke no Romanian, so I couldn't ask a national. But I said to that little gypsy boy in the gypsy language, Gaile Roma, or where are the gypsies? He took us by the hand and he led us clear across town to that parcel of land we never would have found it on our own. He came to a small one-room house. And when I say a small one-room house, I'm talking about a house about 14 feet by 14 feet, mud brick home. When he came to the door of the house, he didn't knock. He just pushed the door open and walked in quietly, almost tiptoed. I said to the missionary that was with me, we should walk in the same way. And as soon as we walked in, we saw right away why he was entering quietly. Nobody lived in this house. This was a house that was designated specifically for gypsies to assemble to pray. And when we walked in, there were 10 or 12 gypsies on their knees in a circle praying. They did not know that we had entered. One gypsy man was praying out loud. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in all this. Gypsies are bilingual all over the world. They speak the host nation's language and the gypsy language. Had he prayed out loud in Romanian, Pastor, I never would have understood a word of his prayer. But the Sovereign Father had him pray out loud in the gypsy language. And this is what he prayed. God, send us someone. Send us someone to tell us the truth of the gospel, for we are very confused. Now, to understand that prayer, this is six years after the fall of communism. And in those six years, every cult and his brother coming from the West were coming and confusing these primitive people, telling them if they ate pork, they couldn't go to heaven telling them that if they didn't speak in tongues, they couldn't go to heaven, and telling them that if they didn't assemble for worship on Saturday, they couldn't go to heaven. His prayer was genuine. He said his amen. He opened his eyes and stood to his feet, and I, standing right in front of him, boldly said to him in the gypsy language, four generations away from Eastern Europe, 5,000 miles separated by a little pond called the Atlantic Ocean, and God preserved my language for that specific and I said to him, we are the answer to that prayer. How would you like to get your prayers answered that fast? I presented the gospel to him and several others in that room. They fell to their knees, Dr. Seymour, and they prayed and received the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Gypsies are very emotional people. They laugh hard, they cry hard, they fight hard, and they celebrate hard. He was a professional accordion player, and by his side was his accordion. He would bring it and play Christian songs before they prayed. He was so excited, he grabbed his accordion, walked outside. All the gypsies that were in that room walked out after him. He began to play, and gypsies were coming out from all over the place. I think they thought there was a party going on. And there on the dirt roads of Tinko, Romania, I preached the gospel to hundreds of gypsies. Many were saved. We had our first baptism in August of that year. The nucleus of the Man of Baptist Church of Tinko, Romania had been established. The man that I heard praying that received Christ is a man by the name of Gitsa Feketa. He is now the pastor of three of our national churches. There has to be a preacher. There has to be someone who has the call of God in his life. He must obey, like Isaiah said, whom, when God said, who shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, there am I, send me. The preacher must be sent. That's what missions conference is about. 
Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. There has to be a preacher. At the time of the Titanic disaster, there was a Baptist preacher on that ship by the name of John Harper. John Harper was a 39-year-old widow. He was traveling with his sister and his six-year-old daughter, Annie. After the ship hit the iceberg and began to sink, Brother Harper got his sister and daughter on a lifeboat, but he stayed in the icy waters of the Atlantic, floating on whatever he could get his hands on, preaching the gospel. One survivor says this. He says, I am a survivor of the Titanic. I was one of only six people out of 1,517 to be pulled from the icy waters on that dreadful night. Like hundreds around me, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic. The wail of the perishing was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who called to me and said, Sir, is your soul saved? Then I heard him call out to others as he and everyone around me sank beneath the waters. There alone, in the night, with two miles of water under me, I cried to Christ to save me. I am John Harper's last convert. There needs to be a preacher. Yeah. Now I want you to see the second ingredient. You'll find it in the same verse. Watch now verse 1, then verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, watch now, and preached Christ unto them. Number one, there needs to be a preacher, but number two, there needs to be a proclamation of Christ. And you'd say, well, come on, preacher. What else is a preacher going to preach but Christ? Really? I hear them all the time. They're preaching everything but. Help me, church. There's one guy on TV. His haircut must be $200. His suit's got to be twenty grand. Uh, 2000 His dental work's got to be about $20,000. And he comes on TV, Brother Bushy, and he tells me I'm good. And I have a problem with that because I have to look at this mug in the mirror every morning. I know that I'm not good. And he gives me a pep talk. He tries to motivate me. But he doesn't preach Jesus. Now, I'm not going to tell you his name because you might like him, but his initials are Joel Osteen. <laughs> they all don't preach Christ. We need preachers who will preach Christ. Philip was always faithful to preach Christ. In verses 34 and 35, here's Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the, verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophetess, of himself or some other man? Watch now, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Philip opened his mouth and Christ came out. The preacher proclaims Christ. He proclaims him virgin born. He proclaims him with a sinless life. He proclaims him performing miracles. He proclaims, proclaims him making the blind to see, the deaf hear. He proclaims him, proclaims him raising the dead to life. Preacher proclaims Jesus, rested, crucified, buried, but risen and coming again. We preach Christ. 
Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ and his gospel. It is the message. It's the Christmas story. It's Luke, Luke chapter 2. For unto you this born this day the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It is the message of God's glory. For verse 9 of Luke 2 says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. It is the message of great joy. Verse 10 of Luke 2 says, And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. It is the message of praise to God. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. It is the message of God's peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Good will towards men. It is the message of God's light. The glory of the Lord showed round about them. There needs to be a preacher. Amen. But number two, there needs to be a proclamation of Christ. And number three, we find it in verse six. Remember now, this is a formula. This is God outlining to us how we get to verse 8. Don't forget verse 8 is the goal to get great joy in the cities of the world. How do we do it? We need a preacher who proclaims Christ. And then I want you to look at verse 6. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. First, we need a preacher. Second, we need a proclamation of Christ. But number three, we need a people who unite with the man and with the message. I call this point the missing link. Because many times we don't have the people who unite. We have a visionary who stands behind the pulpits of our churches and says that we need to go into this country and we need to go into that country and we need to do this and we need to do that. And we say, preacher, I really can't see it. I really can't see. Well, I have a philosophy that I live by. When you can't see, hang on to somebody who can see until you gain your sight. Where there is no vision, the people perish. There needs to be a preacher. There needs to be a proclamation of Christ. But there needs to be a people. And the people united with this preacher in our story because he preached the right message. They united because he preached truth. They united because he preached God's word. They united because he preached Christ. They united because he preached Christ with power. And they united because his life matched his message. They united because they witnessed the power of God. They paid attention to what he said and did what the man of God told them to do. They got saved, and there was great joy in that city. Now, not just because it's numerical. We cannot get to verse 8 until we take care of verse 7. What do we need? Well, verse 5 tells us, a preacher. Verse 5 tells us we need a proclamation of Christ in order to give great joys to the cities of the world. Verse 6 tells us that we need a people who unite with the man and the message. But we can't get to verse 8 until we take care of verse 7. It's, an, it's a formula. It's a recipe outlined by God. It's a prescription, if you will, to get great joy into the cities of the world. Read with me verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. In our equation, three components must be put in. But, number, but the fourth component needs to be taken out of the equation. You know what we've done in America? We haven't taken Satan out of the equation. And don't doubt my patriotism. I love this nation. It's the greatest nation in all the world. And I've been to 24 of them. 
in all of its imperfection, it doesn't get any better than the U.S. of A. But here's what we've done in America. We've put Satan into the equation. Quiet in here. We put Satan into the equation, preacher. There needs, here's the fourth point, there needs to be a pulling down of the strongholds of Satan so we can get to verse 8, and there was great joy in that city. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. There needs to be a pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. Satan must be taken out of the equation before there can be great joy. You see, Brother Stevens, you, you work with the gypsy people, and it's obvious for you to see the demonic activity. But preacher, we, we don't have any problems with demons in America. You know what we do here? We camouflage it. We cover it up. One of these doesn't make you civilized. But my people are people of the earth, Dr. C. They can't hide it. What you see is what you get. I preached in Vadin, Bulgaria. Vadin has 80,000 gypsies in one city. They run everything but the police department and the hospital. We were preaching on the streets, Brother Bushy. I took our team from Romania, and we were on one side of the street, and on the other side, people were bringing their plastic chairs, their lawn chairs, whatever they could sit on. Hundreds of gypsies lined up on the street. And there, as I was preaching the gospel in the gypsy language, my team was there. And as I was giving the invitation, a young woman, probably in her early 20s, almost directly in front of me, She's coming forward to be saved because that was the invitation. She gets about halfway in the middle of the street. I watched her eyes roll back in her head. She fell to the ground, her arms to her side. She began rolling. You couldn't duplicate the way she was rolling. Our national pastor, Brother Gitza, went out to deal with her. He told me later that when he got there, a masculine voice was coming out from within her. No matter how, much, how hard a woman tries to talk like a man, she still sounds like a woman. There we prayed. We got on our knees and prayed. She came to her senses. Brother Gitsa presented the gospel to her. She received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. She stood up, threw her arms in the air, said in the gypsy language, I'm finally set free. It was known that she was demon-possessed. I preached in Timisoara, Romania. It's a small church, a dear friend of mine by the name of Pete Heise. He pastored up in upstate New York. I presented the work in his church. I didn't get support out of it, but he resigned his church to work with gypsies in Romania. Small little church, probably could seat 50 people. We had a, a revival, weeks of meetings, and I noticed that there was a woman, an elderly woman, about five or six rows back, all dressed in black. In my mind, I thought she was a widow. She was mourning. But I watched her as I was preaching. She grabbed the chair in front of her and began shaking that chair just like that. At the invitation, she came to my left. Brother Heisey went to deal with her, and she was shaking at the altar, he presented the gospel to her. She got saved. Her name was Maria Bogdan, and Maria Bogdan was dressed in black because she's known was known as the local witch. Maria Bogdan got saved, and in the weeks of meeting, she was the first one at the door of the church every night, baptized, became a productive member of the church, and now she's in heaven. There needs to be a pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. Mark chapter 3, verse 27 says, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, 
and then he will spoil his good. Now, you know, I was raised a thief, and you don't forget how to steal, Brother Bushy. I still know how to steal. By the control of the Holy Spirit, I don't steal things that don't belong to me. But I'm still stealing. You know what it is? The souls of gypsy men and women and boys and girls out of the clutches of the devil. I'm supposed to spoil his house. That's what the verse says. But we need to bind the strong man by pulling down the strongholds so that we can have the liberty to reach the lost. In our story, uh, they chased away the devil that stole their joy in the, in, in the first place because John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh not but for the steal, to kill and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We, we pull down the strongholds of Satan so that we could see them set free. Let me ask you a couple of questions as I finish tonight. Are you a threat to the devil? Are you rattling the devil's cage? Your faith promise commitment can be a threat to the devil. It'll rattle his devil, the devil's cage. I read a bookmarker that says this. Live your life in such a way that when you get up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, Satan shudders and says, oh no, he's awake. With the God that would describe my life. They pulled down the strongholds of Satan. And watch what it says. Verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. They had met the master. The person of joy. Heads about and eyes are closed. And no one's looking around. 